Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello and welcome. Today I have a, a very interesting conversation with Scott Wilder. He is the global head of customer engagement, advocacy, and community at HubSpot. Now, I am a avid HubSpot fan. I sing their praises. I'm on it all day and love the platform. So it'll be fun to talk about that and what he's doing there. And he's also a big soccer player. And at one time, he was the only American on his soccer team. And so that'll be fun to hear about too and what languages were spoken. So let's jump right into that and then we'll get to HubSpot. <laughs> sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me today. It's always great uh, hearing good things about HubSpot, but also being invited to uh, your show. So yeah, so, um, you know, uh, back in the old days, I played soccer. Um, every day. Now I just play it uh, occasionally. And um, when I was in college, I was, you know, one of the few Americans, actually I was, the only, you know, only American on the, on the team. And, um, you know, I had never, I was a New York City kid born in the Big Apple, born and raised there and upstate New York, went to Vassar and played soccer there. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by all these people from all over the world. And, you know, of course I had a decent education, so I knew about geography and all that. But I had never been to any of the places they were from. Turkey, Sweden, Greece, um, France, you know, so it was, you know, they weren't really obscure places, but again, I hadn't been there. And so um, we played soccer. My junior year, we were one of the best in New York State in Division Three, senior year or so. so. But then um, after I graduated, I realized that uh, it was just such, and we also had fall soccer and spring soccer. So it was really a big part of my life. And then I realized that I knew nothing about these other cultures. So I kind of leaned in heavily <laughs> trying to understand what else is outside the United States. And what I mean by that is um, first, you know, I leaned in and went to, I decided that I was gonna go to graduate school for international studies. So I ended up going to Johns Hopkins mm -hmm. sites. Um, but I deferred many years um, because I wanted to go overseas and really see my friends in the countries where they live and get jobs there or whatever. So I actually spent, you know, probably six years in my 20s living overseas full time, you know, and then I went back occasionally. Um, and then also I decided to lean in and learn about other languages. So um, in those years, I learned uh, Chinese and French. Um, and then today, um, uh, married to somebody whose first language is Spanish. So I'm a big believer in globalization, internationalization, and, you know, multilingualization. Right, right, right. So, uh, so six years you're living over international to get to know more about these places and people and culture. So where did you live and what were you doing? Yeah, so um, like a good college grad, I took any job I could get. And mm -hmm. so um, I lived in France for two years and I lived in um, Japan for a year. Hmm. 
and I went to first year Johns Hopkins in Italy for a year. Um, and I know there's this, that doesn't make quite, quite the amount of time, but I guess the last part. So when I was at Johns Hopkins, um, it was actually during, and I show my age here, during Chernobyl and um, the, the fallout of Chernobyl. And uh, Johns Hopkins had an exchange program in Poland. And uh, everybody backed out because of the fallout. And I was like, well, I think I'll go. So I actually was, uh, I guess, is an arrangement with uh, the Jagiellonian University for 20 uh, Western students to go there. And um, I was one of three students who went there, so we were treated very nicely. So to answer your question, two years in France, you know, one year in Italy, one year in Japan, and the rest of the time was a number of countries, including um, two and a half months, three months in Poland. Good for you. Which place did you like living the best? Uh, well, I used to spend my Christmases in Sweden. So I really like Christmas in Sweden. I think it's very magical. And then um, I really like Japan, especially um, Okinawa uh, was really nice as well. So I think Japan, you know, Sweden and then for Christmas and the winter um, where you can drink lots of glock and then in Japan. Um, so Japan was really interesting because out of all the places I went, that was the, the hardest one because at that time in the 80s, not many people spoke English very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was a real challenge, and I didn't speak Japanese, to, to really get to know people and um, kind of, you know, um, get to a place where I could really feel like I was, you know, I wouldn't say a citizen because it was definitely a different culture, but really get to know people, so... So how did you do that? Because it's interesting you say that you learned Chinese, you lived in Japan for a long time. Yeah. So, you know, tell people how, and I know you can do it because I lived in Taiwan when I was yeah. a kid and I didn't speak Chinese, but there's a way you can communicate with people even if you don't share, share the language. And if you were in Japan for two years, you figured out how to do it. So what, what, what yeah. are some best practices? I also, <laughs> I also left out that I lived in China for, uh, um, so... It was right after that, those years, I went to also NYU graduate school and they had an exchange program um, with the um, Hong Kong University. Um, and uh, so I spent a summer, sorry, I spent a semester in Hong Kong and China and also the summer before as well. So I know it's like kind of, you know, I should probably have like this diagram that shows all this. No, but, it's um, fine. It's uh, what I'm interested in is the country. So yeah. <laughs> the countries well, was, and the languages and the exposure. Yeah. Yeah. When I was in Japan, um, you know, I, I had a really interesting job in Japan. And um, I was, because I was in France before that, I was hired by, I, in France, I worked for an investment company. And um, I found that job through um, a friend of mine that I went to college with. And then he sent me to Japan to really convince, <laughs> this is pretty ironic, convince the Japanese to invest in Europe, even though I was in America. <laughs> and, um, and so I was very fortunate. So again, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, young folks going over to Japan. So my job was to meet with Japanese bankers every day with a translator. And, um, you know, part of Japanese culture was really, they weren't going to invest unless they really got to know me. So that really helped a lot. And so, you know, it was both business wise and socially, I can tell some good stories about, you know, going out with the Japanese um, business folks. 
And then, oh, well, go um, ahead. Yeah, <laughs> tell me a good story. Now you got me hooked. <laughs> Wait, I just have to let you know that everybody calls people like that translators, but if it's anybody that's helping facilitate a conversation with you, they're actually called interpreters. interpreters. And translators are the ones who do the written communication. So right. now you, you know the inside secrets to the industry. <laughs> no, no, it's good to get schooled, especially here. Um, so, um, you know, when I was there, and so I think, and I'll answer your question in a second, I think it was really just um, kind of leveraging those relationships early on, and the example I'm going to give you should explain that, and yeah. and I just reached out to a lot of people. I would be, you know, in coffee shops, and I would, like, try and strike up conversations. There was a time when I was in the Sapporo, Sapporo Beer Factory in Hokkaido, and I was, went there by myself, and you know, I was the only American there, the only um, white guy there. And so people were interested. And so either they sat at my table or I sat at their table. And we just like try and, you know, figured out how to communicate with one another, you know. And it's funny, I just recently found some pictures that were on those events. Um, it, was, it was great. But the story is that um, so a few of these Japanese businessmen were really interested in my, you know, being American there. It was a chance for them to learn their English. So they took me out. Uh, for uh, drinks afterwards, which was obviously a big part of the culture. And one night, and I'll, for this a podcast, I'll just say it only happened once, but, you know, wink, wink. Um, we all <laughs> drank too much. And um, I took, took two of them home to their families. Like I got the taxi and took them home. And they were so embarrassed that this guest of theirs took them home and I, I didn't know that this was all part of the culture of going out and drinking. Um, but I felt like, you know, they took such good care of me that I took them back to their homes that one of these guys really like made me part of his family. Like it was really interesting. Like he would invite me on the weekends um, for meals. You know, we, we didn't have a, not a translator. Interpreter. Um, we didn't have an interpreter. <laughs> but um, we kind of, you know, figured it out, but he really brought me into his life. But it was really because I didn't know that drinking was such a big part of the culture then. And I felt like these guys were not going to get home or whatever. And so, you know, with the cab driver, we figured out like how to get these guys home. And um, yeah, so it was a very, you know, very, I was, you know, you don't usually say businessmen are, you know, really warm creatures, but they were very warm people. And really, I think, you know, they were, they're fascinated with an American, but, um, some of them really took me into, you know, their lives even beyond business. And you're probably saying, well, why didn't I learn Japanese? And, you know, I could think of a good reason for that. I mean, I picked up, you know, a little bit because, you know, I'm comfortable with languages, but it, that's how, you know, that was my story. And that's how, like, I got to know these people. Right. No. And there's so much you can do without knowing the language. And here you're talking about friendships that you had that you didn't share a you know, you probably shared a few words, but how you can communicate and really enjoy each other. I think that's a huge thing for Americans to hear because we, a lot of times, are just exposed to English and there's this fear of people who speak other languages. Yeah, there's a German woman on my team who's about to leave the company and go to an Australian company. And I was so happy to hear that here's somebody and, you know, I can't ask her age, but I'll assume she's in, you know, her twenties and that 
was taking this opportunity to live in another culture, mm. you know? And I think if I was giving advice to anybody, you know, just getting out of school, I'd say, if you can afford it, you don't have debt, you know, you don't have like, you don't have to take care of a family member or whatever. If you can live overseas um, or another country and it can even be Canada or Mexico, it doesn't have to be like, you know, I'm, I don't know who the audience here is, but I live in the United States, but it really shakes up your life in a good way about learning about these other cultures. And, right. you know, I think that's, you know, if you ask me about themes, um, I now live um, in a, I live with a family, my wife, <laughs> and her in-laws next door. But my wife's, um, she, her dad's from East Coast, but her mom was born in Puerto Rico. Her brother lives in Brazil and married a Brazilian. And her sister was born in Uruguay and married a Colombian. So I think, you know, mm-hmm. you've given me the opportunity to kind of reflect today. And so this kind of leverage, <laughs> leveraging is such a business word, but this interacting with other cultures is just really is um motivational for me and really i get a lot of energy from it. and i think it's really important for for anybody especially you know a younger person to, to do that and now your first exposure to other cultures was when you were playing on the soccer team right yeah so, so yeah. you were in college you didn't yeah, grow up around <laughs> No, no, there's still many people as adults that never get that opportunity. So, and once it was open to you, you really took it and ran with it. I love it. I love hearing it because that's, I, I feel the same. Like just that, that interaction with different cultures is just so exhilarating to yeah, learn. Yeah, I talk, talk to Gunnar from, uh, Gunnar from Sweden, the Mats, who I still stay in touch with from Sweden, um, you know, Jewel. I haven't talked to him in a while, he, or he was from Turkey. I mean, uh-huh. these guys are still, Mario, I talked to today, from, he, he was from Italy. So these guys are still in my life, you know, X number of years later. <laughs> that is fantastic. These are all college friends all over the world that you're still keeping in touch with. Yeah, and I think, you know, um, social media, you know, has been yeah. kind of dragged through the mud in the press lately. Um, but I think it's really helped me a lot in terms of, staying in touch with these people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think back to the first time that I went over to Europe, and I'm guessing we're about the same age from what you've said, but it was hard to call home. I mean, if I wanted to touch base with my parents and let them know I was still alive, you had to find a phone bank and stand in line and prepay in whatever currency of the country. And then you'd get so many minutes and then it would start to beep when you were going to get cut off. So, you know, you had to prepay. It was expensive. I mean, now people can travel internationally, hook up to Wi-Fi and be looking at them and talk to them. It's it's so much easier. I I don't know how parents live with their kids traipsing around like we did. (laughs) Yeah, and I just um, discovered all these letters that my mother wrote me um, back at this time. And so letter writing, right? So, you know, she's like, you know, we haven't talked in a week and uh, two weeks because yeah. all the phone stuff you said. So we really depended on letter writing and, you know. Right. Yeah, the, the international airmail. All right. So I guess we should jump over to HubSpot because your, your background is fascinating too with all the global um, 
areas that you've been into. So you've, you've recently started at HubSpot. You've been there less than six months, I guess. Correct. Correct. Okay. So how did, so you, you got into international business cause you went over there and worked internationally and then you came back to the United States and how did you keep the international part of it alive? Yeah. So I, I finished up my, uh, did my first year of graduate school in Italy at Johns Hopkins. And then I came back to the States and then I went to NYU, you know, but maybe I'm a student forever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I mentioned I was in Hong Kong um, and China. And so when I was there in Hong Kong and China, I worked for um, Dentsu, which is the largest Japanese or was the largest Japanese um, advertising agency. And I really enjoyed it. So, you know, I wrote down um, that I, whatever kind of job I was looking at, I wanted to make sure there was kind of an international aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I probably bat, batting, you know, 50% on that, uh, of keeping that. But that was something I always like thought about. Um, so my first job was with American Express and we were working on um, credit card marketing, you know, around the world. But I think to answer your question was the jobs I, you know, that was just one of my criteria for a job is like, you know, is there an international slant to it? And I have this whole matrix of what that I use when I look for a job. And um, so, you know, there's some jobs that didn't, I couldn't do that, but in general, um, that was really important to me. And at HubSpot, you know, I work with a team of community managers that are in five or six countries. And, uh, you know, and then there's other international folks I work with, whether they're on the development side or whether they're on the content creation side. Okay, uh, so wait, go back. Your title is Global Head of Customer Engagement, Advocacy, and Community, and you've got people all over the world. So talk to me more about what you're doing around the world because that can yeah. look very different across countries. Yeah, so... <clears throat> And I, I can also, yeah, so at HubSpot, um, let's just say the community platform, we have an English language platform. We have one mm-hmm. in French and Spanish and Portuguese, and they're local people managing the community experience for those platforms. And then, you know, we were rolling out a new advocacy program. And so you need to really think about how that applies globally, since HubSpot is a you know global company, mm-hmm. and what does that mean? So, you know, um, how does your content trans? You know, how, what kind of content you have at the local level? Um, if you have you know gamification, you know, even something that's like a badge, you know, does that? How is that re- represented in another country? You know. Um, a star in the United States might be interpreted differently, you know, like, right. so actually a good example is, you know, if one of your company colors is red and you have a red star, well, red stars represent other things and, you know, other countries that you might not want. Um, so really thinking about that globally and we have a, a localization team um, that helps with that. You know, we have user groups. Uh, so we have user groups all over the world. Um, we have about 150 user groups and, Obviously, before COVID, there were more, the user groups were more geo-focused. Um, so we're now moving to themes like, you know, your interest, uh, your job, et cetera. But the team here is managing or coordinating with all those user group leaders in different countries. 
So those are just some, some examples of how, you know, you have to kind of think globally. Yes. I interviewed um, Patrick Nunes for a podcast that was released a couple of weeks ago. He's from Rotary International, and he talked about this whole process of going through it. You might be interested in, in hearing that because they went from – you know, a lot of, you can content creation in the local market, but then you lose the global message um, versus if you create it globally, it doesn't ring true in the local market and how you integrate all that together. And he's, he's fascinating in talking through their development and involvement where what they went. Yeah. I mean, we try and think about content. We try and think about like the imagery. We try and think about symbolism um, something that often doesn't get talked about is the channel. So before HubSpot, I was at Udacity and, um, Udacity is online education. They compete against Coursera and Udemy and, um, you know, maybe it's obvious, maybe it'd be obvious to some of your listeners, but, um, what I quickly learned is that, you know, we had a, we have a very robust email program and, um, it wasn't effective in China really at all. And, you know, so what the people on the ground quickly schooled me in and taught me was, you know, to lean into WhatsApp and um, start using that more as a kind of marketing channel. So I think another aspect of this is, you know, you think about your content, your communications, but also the channels that resonate in that local market. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's language and dialects, you know, um, the online learning space um, after the United States this, for Udacity, um, the second largest group of learners was, was in India. Well, you know, India has some real challenges in terms of dialects and, um, you know, other things like that, right? There's, you know, 22 different languages in India. So, I mean, you can lean into the most common ones, but, uh, um, so you just need to think about all those things as well as you're putting together a program at HubSpot. Yeah, sorry. I was going to ask you, so at HubSpot, how are you doing it? I mean, you've got fantastic content and training here in the United States. Are you taking that and translating it? Are you leaving it more to the open market? Or how? what's the management around that? Yeah, so um, we'll use community as an example. So for longer form content, we'll use a, kind of a localization process we have, and I'll talk about that in a second. Mm-hmm. For shorter, shorter content, you know, a few sentences, and we would use these uh, – community managers, but we have, you know, I mean, again, larger company, but we have a whole localization team. We have localization specialists. They focus on um, the tone and voice. They focus on, you know, um, kind of even alignment at the local level and also, you know, here in the United States. Um, They also have translation vendors that they could coordinate um, more and more, you know, machine learning is part of this. So they're beginning to to move into that space. Um, they'll coordinate with ag- agencies, as I said. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, we're f- fortunate that, um, and this wasn't the case at Udacity, even though that's a decent-sized company, but at HubSpot we have, you know, a localization team that can ha- handle longer-form content. And so if you create some long-form content, do you just send it to the localization department or how's the con? Cause you have a lot of people creating content at HubSpot. 
Yeah, so that department also has project managers, so they, right, so I know this is kind of a larger company uh, lens that we're using here, but uh, so they basically handle localization for all different parts of the company. Um, so community is one aspect, the, you know, user groups would be another kind of aspect, but they're, you know, they're a central place that really handles this, and they, you know, they're in sync with the tone of HubSpot, they yeah. understand the nuances of the market. You know, they'll coach us on, um, you know, different like, like how we're talking about something might be different in Germany versus Japan versus, you know, France. So they're really, you know, I could have all this international experience, um, but they are the experts. And so we really, you know, rely on them a lot. And so you, is there any structure or requirements to go through them? Is it like a push or a pull? If I talk in marketing terms, yeah, yeah. are you pushed to use them or are they so good they're pulling you in because you want to, you know, their, their turnaround is so good and their quality is so good and they're so helpful. Like what, yeah. what, what what's the kind of corporate culture around that? Yeah. So the culture is to really lean on them um, because that infrastructure is there like to, you know, to go out and find, you know, agencies that could help with this or experts that could help with this. Like, you know, in this, Udacity was different, but at HubSpot, we have this group that we can rely on. And uh, so we do, you know, they're, they're the experts and um, they're also, you know, kind of our guides in this process. The key is for us to get into their queue of projects, right, to get, mm -hmm. you know, and that's why they have these um, project managers to help with that. But turnaround time is pretty quick. It's two weeks or less, which I think is pretty good, hmm. um, you know, for a company our size. And, um, you know, if it's a longer, and then, you know, we're also fortunate. So in the places where we have feet on the ground, you know, they can look at the work the localization team has done and kind of just eyeball it and see if it works, you know, for, for our team. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you don't like have, you know, like I use the community as an example of somebody, you know, in a certain market, then we really are going to rely a hundred percent on the localization team. I think, you know, one of my goals and I haven't, you know, being transparent, tested the tires here, kicked the tires is we have a pretty extensive partner program that can yes. really help us in some of these markets. That, oh yeah. You know, we don't have, um, you know, we don't have um, a strong representation. So, you know, I, I being the proper, doing the proper thing and the good uh, employee, I need to kind of get the sense of, you know, how the company wants to handle this, but I'd really like to lean on our partners in these other parts of the world and um, have them, have the partners help with this, um, this translation or, you know, even kind of test out crowdsourcing uh, is another thing. And now I know the quality will be different, right? Because the partner will have more expertise there and crowdsourcing opens up, you know, the good, the bad, and potentially the ugly. But those are, those are things that are on my roadmap to, to try and do. I mean, I want, you know, HubSpot's a global company. And, you know, if I talk about some of the programs, you know, it's definitely, you know, 80% of the, the programs are active in 20% of the countries. And I really want to, you know, re there's a lot of people we can reach out there. 
Right, right, right. And I mean, to be fair, HubSpot's really only focused on international expansion the last few years. I mean, we've we've been a partner for, I don't know, four or five years now. And there was, that was just when the localization uh, department was starting. Um, and then one of the annual initiatives was to expand globally. So, um, it really has, and that, and I think with, you know, my one complaint with HubSpot is the platform is not built well to handle multiple languages, um, you know, with the custom themes and stuff like that. There's still a lot of manual stuff we have to do on it. So I tell a lot of technology um, business owners that if you're building your platform now or startups, you know, think about globalization. You may think you're never going to get there, but build it now with that in mind. You know, and the trade-off is, is HubSpot is so easy to use and so customizable that, you know, that there's that, that trade-off. So you mentioned Udacity has a much different setup than HubSpot. So I'm guessing they didn't have a localization department. No, we really relied on the uh, the feet on the ground in our top markets. So in China and India, um, the team there would be responsible for a translating themselves or finding somebody locally to translate it. And those were huge markets for us. Um, you know, it's just we didn't. The corporate did not have this whole kind of localization machine. Interesting. So did corporate ever check the quality of what was being done in the local market? Um, not really. Yeah, not really. So we really relied on the local, the local market to drive it. Now, when I got there, so that's for really kind of general, the website and I'll call it broader communications. Um, for email, I'll contradict myself a little bit. We had seven instances when I got there and each country had their own email program and we decided to centralize that. Mm -hmm. um, and, but we then did rely on somebody locally if it had to be in, you know, Mandarin or if it had to be in, you know, Spanish or some, you know, Indian, you know, dialect, Indian, Indian language. Okay. So, right. So very different. What, um, what do you think, if you had to give recommendations to a company on how to handle their translation or multilingual communications, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think a lot of it depends on the size of the company, um, you know, where they are in their evolution. I like what you, you know, if it's earlier stage, I like what you said is, you know, you know, if you have any aspiration to get to, you know, X number of dollars in sales or to be global and everything is global today. So, mm -hmm. I really find a partner who, a partner, you know, a partner agency can, you know, somebody that you can work with who can advise you on how to expand globally and then also handle some of that translation, right? I think the advising part is really key. You know, I gave the example of China and, you know, how that was kind of a different, different market, different way of reaching people. Um, I think also with that partner, you know, say I was, starting out and I was in the United States is I would actually try and run some tests. You know, AdWords is a great way to, or, uh, you know, search advertising is a great way to kind of call, throw bread in the water and see if the minnows bite, you know, and run some ads 
um, in those local markets and see if there's actually interest, you know, um, you could do other things as well. You know, you could work with this party to identify um, influencers in those markets as well. But you need somebody to help you unless you're, you know, to speak. They'll, they'll find someone who can help you with the language barrier. They're going to have somebody who's going to help you with the nuances of the, the different channels. Um, it's really tough to go it alone. And so you might say, well, it's expensive. And then, you know, I think that's where you got to, there's a number of things you could do. Um, you know, you could obviously do a retainer, you could uh, do a rev share, uh, you know, you could do a project based. Um, I, I, so I think the central theme is like, it's really tough to go it alone um, and figure out where globally. It's just, you know, it's kind of analogous to, um, I often get asked, you know, help me with social marketing, help me with social marketing. And I want to be in Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, whoa, you know, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. And so let's figure out the one to start with. And I think this partner or this agency can help you figure out what's the one or two markets to start with and then can help with that translation. You know, I agreed with you. And last year we knocked off, and we've, we've been on all of them. We have content that's going out. We try to follow the HubSpot best practices. And so last year we really focused on LinkedIn, and that's been very successful for us. Not a lot of connections. We've gotten leads in through it. We've made relationships. And so that's been great. This year was the focus on Facebook, but I just got on Clubhouse. Have you been on that yet? Yes, I am on Clubhouse. I love Clubhouse. I'm addicted to it. I have to be careful because two hours can fly by and I haven't accomplished anything because I could go into rooms and really learn a lot of stuff. But from there, I'm learning that, that, that that's connected to Twitter and Instagram, which I am not as active on. So I'm having to become more active in that. And then I'm watching the people who are very successful on that. And, you know, through your message there, they're bringing you into their Facebook group. So they're not using... LinkedIn as much, but I think yeah. that's only a matter of time uh, to get people in. So now I'm like, huh, this is rather than linear and figuring out the social media. Now it's wrapping it in all together. So I haven't figured it out, you know, the roadmap yeah. for that. But uh, it's really interesting you brought up Clubhouse because um, I'm thinking about today's conversation. I'm thinking about trends. And, you know, so I have, you know, there's like four or five trends I could, if you want, we could discuss. But one of them is, the use of different media types besides text, right? So video is the obvious one. Right. Like how you do, you know, think about internationalization, globalization for that. But I'm really interested in audio. Um, and maybe it's because of all the languages that, you know, I was thinking about or exposed to. So you have obviously Clubhouse and there's, you know, other platforms that are experimenting with voice community or voice chat. And then we have something which I'm going to have to spell because she'll respond to me. It's A-L-E-X-A. <laughs> and Google Assist. Right, right Alexa? <laughs> and so, you know, that's another thing here is, you know, so here I am in the United States and, you know, next door where my in-laws live, it's a very Spanish language centric home. And so, you know, Alexa in English might not cut it for them. Right. And so, yeah, so I think Clubhouse is really interesting. And then when you were talking about it, it's not a linear 
none of this is linear. And then also you have these, you know, like I was talking about themes and one of them is this, these different media types. Yes. Yes. Because I'm already looking at Clubhouse and they've built a great app, but I went into a room the other day, not realizing that it was all German. German is not one of my languages. So I thought, huh, they've got to get to the point where you can search by language, not just scroll through the room. So I think, I think they're going to really have to expand that because they're, they've gone global. Yeah. I mean, there's people from so many countries already. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. So go back to, I want to see how you're thinking it through. You're, you've got the advocacy, I have to read the title again, Engagement, right. Advocacy, and Community. <laughs> <laughs> the global head of that. And you're not going to be able to send everything off into the, off to the localization department. So you talked about, you know, the, the, crowdsourcing it and local people in these. Talk to me more about how you're thinking about this. Yeah, so I think um, the framework is, so I always like try and start with guiding principles and frameworks. So, you know, I think that HubSpot has countries that it's, you know, it's primarily focused on, you know, that's where the bulk of the business is. But then you know, partners have helped in all these other places in the world. So the, can they help, you know, with localization or uh, translation, right? And to be honest, I haven't like operationalized it yet, but that's kind of what I'm thinking is as we try and expand some of these. Pl- so when I think about these platforms, um, you know, you talk about job title, but I really think about creating a seamless integrated experience across advocacy, community, user groups, and webinars. That's kind of one guiding principle, the seamless integrated experience. The next guiding principle is we have this great ecosystem of people. How can they help us establish a footprint or expand to other parts of the world? And part of that is the translation part. And so, you know, HubSpot might have its, you know, localization team focus on the places where it's selling the most today. I'm just throwing that out as an example. Mm-hmm. And then, how can our partners help us on these local markets the same way that partners might help us get into niche segments, for example, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and then the other option is if it's even like a, a longer tail of sorts, you know, can we look at potentially crowdsourcing? You know, when I was at Intuit, um, which I was at uh, for almost 10 years, um, it was really interesting. I was doing a, a platform that had community and learning on it. It was all in English. Um, and there was an area that was for user-generated content. I'm a big believer in user-generated content. Mm-hmm. And out of the blue one day, I was sitting down drinking my glass of wine. No, I was sitting down and I noticed that there was all this Spanish content on it. Mm-hmm. Some user just decided to start translating everything we were doing. He was, a, he was, you know, like a, a cons- he had his own consulting firm. He was a t- uh, um, an accountant tax advisor and he just started translating content. And so I reached out to him and said, why are you doing this? This is great. But like, 
you know. Why? Yeah. Why? You know, I'm not paying you. And he's like, well, because it's going to help me get customers, help me build my brand. But also, I just like giving. And, um, you know, that really Latin love. And um, so I said, well, what do you think about if I just kind of deputize you and say you manage this space and I'm kind of like your, your venture capitalist and I'll help you get resources. And he built out this incredible section of, you know, learning content, uh, community content. Um, you know, this was kind of borderline when YouTube was coming out. And so, um, and so I, you know, I, that experience really stuck with me. And instead of like saying, no, no, you can't do that. I, I would, you know, I'm hoping at HubSpot that I can lean into things like that. And whether it's a partner, you know, or a user and say, go for it. Right. You know, we'll have to figure out maybe some quality control. I mean, you know, right. you know mm. Wendy, I know you. And so I know, you know, I can trust you. And, um, but you know, I, this guy I didn't know at all. And um, so, you know, we had to build this rapport and all that. And eventually I just let him run with it. Um, so I, I, I think there's a, there, there, it's just, you know, kind of Wikipedia does something similar where they rely on individuals to do the translation. And mm -hmm. I think for some of the platforms we're talking about, I don't believe in the command and control approach. I mean, I think it's, you know, embrace, again, guiding principles, embrace, embrace you know, partnerships and user created content. It's, uh, I, I, I there's a chapter in the book I just wrote. I just wrote a book. It's called The Language of Global Marketing. It's in layout right now. And the chapter talks about this exactly of where you go with content. And as I'm listening to you, you know, my, my whole back prickles when I hear crowdsourcing because you lose, you know, quality control. You use, you know, ownership issues. You've got... Um, confidentiality issues um, so there's there, there, I just wrote a blog on on that but you're talking about marketing content that you want out there um, and so one of the mo I mean there's a there's a lot there and it's also interesting because partners HubSpot partners come to us to get the translation of their clients you know so partners would be the creative agencies and then their clients are the companies that they're hiring the creative agencies to do the work so the partners come to us for translation but the differences that you're talking about is if you have the partners do the translation they get the credit for it so they get the social you know if you put links to them and a description of their company having done it that's content creation that they're doing that they'd get credit which might actually help bring business into them so they've got the motivation to do that yeah no and exactly it, so sorry go ahead yeah so it's not as blind as crowdsourcing whereas we're uh, and then you have the opportunity for just in language creation which TripAdvisor does it really well they have a standard format for any of their postings. So if you, you know, have a, you know, a bed in your house you want to rent out and you want to put it on there, you know, or you're, you've got a, whatever, you've got, you know, you've got a, 
I'm trying to think of that thing that's round and they have them out in the Boston Harbor because I thought it would be a fun example, but I'm drawing a blank on the word. A buoy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a hut. It's a round hut that you can stay in. Um, you know, so I've seen them on Airbnb. But anyway, if you have, you know, you have a cottage out back that you want to rent and it sleeps for, it's got two bathrooms and it's got a TV included and a kitchen. Uh, with full utensils, like all that is standard stuff. So you'd fill that out. And then whoever picks the language, the TripAdvisor information is in the accurate translation. Yet when people want to write reviews, they can write it in their native language. And you can use Google Translate, which you get a crappy translation, but you get enough of the gist as to whether, you know, under five stars, they're really raving and what they liked about it. Um, so there's a lot of creative ways that you could do that and i'm happy to brainstorm with you too you know yeah, no, that, would, that would be great um you know we could discuss the crowdsource thing and you know i'd say wikipedia has editors and you know we can debate that but so so that's one thing we could do for the crowdsource but on the partner side so you know when i look at some of the platforms i have i mean the platforms that you know i work with um, you know, I'm all about like how to help somebody learn our product, how to help them. What I have my, again, more principles. So the principles are master for me, help them master the product, master their craft and master their career. And I think, you know, for our partners, part of that is to demonstrate like, you know, they're experts in these areas and to build their brand mm -hmm. uh, in front of our users. And, you know, what is it? The rising tide lifts all boats. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. And so that's, you know, again with, again with the principles, but these are all things that, you know, I, I think are really important and, um, and especially today, cause you know, you can't, I'm going to mix my metaphors. You can't catch every fly ball, right? So you need to rely on the team and the team is for us. It's the partner, uh, the partners that we have as well as, you know, experts in certain areas. So, yeah, and I think I've certainly seen it with the partners is that the, the, the rising people do help each other. I mean, you look at all the community that um, Dan and David had built with the lion classes and the training. People are giving back into that and training and getting offline and mentoring people. But then there's a lot of partnering between partners because now marketing is so specialized that an agency can't do everything. So I think that's been really good. And then you look at the um, number of partners who also want to be HubSpot trainers and get in. And so that's now there's criteria to meet for doing that. But I think if you build something like that, you know, if you get a, if you're a partner training, you know, a partner who is a HubSpot trainer, there's a lot of benefits that go with that. Well, if you're a partner that does HubSpot translation, you get these benefits and it should come back to benefit their agency. No, exactly. So, yeah. you know, local, uh, you know, localization, helping the stuff that you do and the magic you do is, you know, I don't do that. Um, and our localization team is only helping HubSpot. So if I can help, you know, our customers or you know, these companies find resources, you know, it's a win-win for everybody. Right. 
Yeah, and if they can do it, hey, well, we're here to do it. You know that. <laughs> you can send it over, we can handle it. But I do see how you're trying to build the community and then the, you know, expense and timing and everything like that. Now, people do run into it's not going to be a priority and how quickly are they going to turn it around? Do you get consistency? But then, you know, if the localization team or you hire a vendor like us to do some sort of quality control, then you keep the consistency over it. Yeah. Uh, you can try it yourself and I have tried it myself. It's, it's tough. It's really tough to do. And you know, you have to think about if you're running a business, like where do you want to focus? I tell, <laughs> tell people you have three, eight hour blocks a day, right? You might sleep yeah. one of them, one of them you work. And then that last one, you got to decide if you want to like work more or be with your family or whatever. So you can <laughs> pay for somebody to help you with like something like we're talking about. I think it's worth it. Right, right. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, uh, during the shutdown and COVID, when you took that eight hours of socializing out, and I've got two teens who would rather be on, you know, FaceTime with their friends up in their room, one's off at college, I did a lot more working because it was a lot more appealing than doing house projects. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a book, launched a podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm a copy of your book. Okay, I definitely will. I definitely will. Um, we have, um, we're coming in close to time, and I do want to get into some of the fun personal questions, but I've, I've loved the discussion, and I hope that it's been helpful to our listeners if they're thinking about how to get it done. This is a larger company question that we're talking about rather than smaller companies who, um, you know, there's a whole different way and happy to help. But I want to know what your favorite foreign word is. Uh, you ready for this? I am, Scott. Give it to me. Poobel. Poobel. Yeah, trash, trash bin. <laughs> so, and the reason is because I have, um, hopefully I don't look it, but uh, I, I eat a lot. And um, you absolutely so, don't look it. You must say, you know, I'm, I'm, do, I'm recording this on video <laughs> and he looks like a very fit soccer player. So, <laughs> but, um, so one of the ways I learned French is I, stayed with a French family and the dad used to call me uh, Poubelle because I oh. ate so much. <laughs> How do you spell that? Oh man, <laughs> a long time. I have to even, I would have to, to look. Uh, yeah, that's good. It's I kind of slang it. too. So, so there's a lot of good uh, okay. slang. And it means trash can. Yeah. So they'd say, like, take your poobel out to the, the street or something yeah. like that, you know. Okay. All right. And I've never word. heard that one. <laughs> I have to give you a second word because it's really funny. Um, my second favorite word in Chinese is mama hu which means so-so. And there's actually a restaurant in San Francisco called mama hu uh, my Mama hu Yeah. <laughs> in Chinese? What dialect? That's uh, Mandarin. Is so it really? I only, okay. Yeah, I only speak Mandarin. Well, then what's the difference between that and hen how? And how is, uh, oh, that's like pretty good, you know, very good. Yeah. So ting how is fantastic. Hen how yeah. is okay. And then mama hoo hoo is so so? Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm learning the scale. I thought it was ting how, hen how, boo how. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm liking these words. How about your favorite vacation? Um, so I wish I could say <coughs> something glamorous, um, but um, it's actually Nauset Beach, Cape Cod. 
Oh, East Coast. So that's where I spent a lot of time growing up. Um, it's a beautiful beach and uh, it's, you know, held up pretty well, you know, in terms of like beach buggies running over it and things like that. So that's that's my favorite place. Um, and I go there every year and my sister now lives there. And uh, so Cape, Nasa Beach, Cape Cod. I used to own a house real close to that. Okay. <laughs> so I know Nasset Beach very well. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. It is a beautiful beach. A little cold for Southerners when they come up here to try to swim. Well, we would swim in, it's funny, when I was younger, we would swim in November. I remember Thanksgiving, we'd jump in. Um, Jump in is probably like the word versus swimming. So I would say that that's a little bit of polar bear clubbish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How about your um, um, your most rewarding cross cultural experience? Besides taking um, some um, intoxicated Japanese businessmen <laughs> home um, and becoming <laughs> part of the family. <laughs> um, God, there's so many. I think that. Um, hmm. So when I was in Hokkaido, um, this true story, it was, uh, I was um, hitchhiking and um, I got, so I was carrying a little backpack and these guys picked me up and then asked me if I wanted to go hiking with them. And little did I know this, that we would be camping for three days. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I wasn't properly dressed and I was really cold, but uh, that was my favorite experience because it goes back to what we were talking about earlier is embracing the unknown and just kind of going for it. And, you know, I was, I was like, sure. Like, you know, I'm with these guys and there was these, um, I don't know if they're called hot tubs, but these like mud baths in the mountains. And so we would do that. And it was, um, so it was just, it was just the spontaneity of it. It was just, you know, they barely spoke English. Um, so that was my, you can see Japan was very special. Yes, absolutely. You know, I always wonder, do Americans welcome international visitors as well as you and I have both felt with being welcomed into other countries? Um, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I live with a very warm family now that welcomes everybody. Uh, but if American. they saw a young you know, somebody yeah. from some other country coming along, would you pick them up and invite them to go yeah, <laughs> camping? Probably, or <laughs> probably, not, probably not. I have another funny Japanese story, but, um, but yeah, no, probably, probably not. Um, but it's, it's hard to say, you know, um, I, if yeah, you've I been an international tourist here by yourself, let me know in the comments below <laughs> as to whether you had any experiences like this. Because I know I certainly have when I've gone international, but I, I don't know about the other way. So I'd love to know from anybody. All right. So tell me your other funny international story or Japanese uh, story. So um, I took a train from Tokyo to Osaka and um, I got out of the train and figured I would hitchhike. So again, showing my age, this was 1985. <laughs> and, um, so I'd start down the road and when I would hitchhike, there was a real language barrier. And so every time I wanted to go forward towards my destination, Osaka, they would take me back to the train station that I had left from. So this happened twice because we couldn't speak and they figured I was traveling. And in 1985, I don't think hitchhiking was like sticking out your thumb, not everybody got what that meant. 
Oh, so you were just trying to get a ride and not take the train, but everybody picked you up and took you to the train, assuming you were going to go that way. But you're like, no, I don't want to pay for the train, and I want to ride with some local people. Yeah, so friend, twice. <laughs> and I was with my friend Marwan, who was another interesting guy. So he was there to learn architecture with Tadao Endo, a very famous Japanese architect. And he's from the Middle East. Well, he's from um, Iraq, uh, but he... Um, he thought it was really funny. So we actually just kept doing this and they kept taking us back to the train station, you know, like a bunch of young, you know, we weren't teenagers. We were a little bit older than that, but we, we just thought it was hilarious that we kept being brought back to the train station. And do it. I can, I just try to imagine like my 19 year old doing that with his friends. Now they'd be like, Oh, let's go try it again. I can see you. Let's see if it happens again and spend the whole day. Just, <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate it. Um, what final recommendations might you have for our listeners? Well, I think non-work related is if you have a chance, whatever age you are, and let's say post-COVID, um, to try and live or spend time overseas, even if it's a trip, you know, for a few weeks and just, you know, lean into getting to know the locals um, is one thing. And I think if it's from a business perspective and you're a smaller company and you're thinking about going global is, you know, you probably have more important things to focus on than figuring out like, translation or um you know how do i like you need to focus on getting customers in your primary market if it's the us and you need to focus on product if you're producing product so you know really you know if you can afford it lean into the, the people who have experience into that space yeah the beautiful thing about that is it's not even coming down to afford it because the state and federal governments offer free resources you can get step grants now to redo your website and then translate it to bring in international business. So no matter what state you're in, there's free money to help you do this because the, the government wants to help balance out the balance of trade. So it's very affordable for even for small companies that have a proven product or service here in the United States. Uh, that's great to know because I didn't know that. So I might be asking you more about that. Absolutely. I will send you the links. You just have to ask me what state and, or tell me what state and I'll provide you a contact there. We're connected in with them. So thanks so much, Scott. Where can people reach you if they want to get in touch? Yeah, so you can uh, send me an email to swilder at hubspot.com or you can find me on LinkedIn um, under Scott K. Wilder. There's, just, there's several Scott Wilders there. Um, and, you know, I try and answer everything on LinkedIn and all my emails, I'd say I'm probably 90% good for that. So feel free to reach out to me, you know, we're all in this together. So, um, you know, just to learn more. And one day, I just want to thank you for inviting me. And, you know, you, these are great questions. And I've been taking notes of things that I need to think about or research. So thank you. 
Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. This has been such a joy. I like how your mind thinks strategically and plotting things out. So I appreciate you being on here. Well, thank you listeners for um, listening in today. I hope you learned something and had a chuckle. I know his stories were, were very fun. And I love how he's saying lean into another culture because that is such a benefit. Anybody who's done it will never has any regrets. So if uh, you think somebody would benefit from this conversation, please forward it on to them um, and give us a five-star rating or PM me privately wherever you can reach me and tell me how I can do better because I know Scott was perfect. So thank you so much and we'll talk to you next time. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.